Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. In 2012, a masked gunman from the Pakistani Taliban boarded a school bus in the northwest of the country. He shot a 15-year-old girl in the head because she'd spoken out on behalf of girls and their right to learn. That teenager was Malala Yousafzai. She survived the attack and went on to become a world-renowned education campaigner. I simply ask that the right to learning should be given to every child. I ask for nothing else. This is The Economist Asks. I'm Anne McElvoy and this week we're asking how to get more girls into school. Wars, natural disasters, poverty and low expectations all keep girls out of school and so do pandemics. COVID-19 disrupted education for more than a billion children and it's estimated that 20 million girls will never go back. Our guest this week wants to break down the barriers. In 2014, Malala became the youngest person ever to win the Nobel Peace Prize. Her Malala Fund campaigns for access to primary and secondary education for girls everywhere. Our editor-in-chief, Zani Minton Beddoes, spoke to her as part of an Economist subscriber event marking International Women's Day. Zani began the conversation by asking Malala how she transformed personal trauma into a major fund for her chosen cause. Yes, so I started this organization many years ago when I received so much global attention and support. I knew that I was not the only girl who was deprived from her education, who was challenged, who was affected. There are 130 million girls who do not have access to education right now, so it became important for me more than ever. This organization is a girl-centered, locally-led organization. We work with local activists in more than 10 countries. We have four education champions who are uh, working on projects that are addressing the issues that girls are facing. It's incredible work, and I want us to spend some time going through through all of it in a bit more detail. But just to start with, do you think that in the last few years, it's become easier for girls to have a voice? I mean, with social media and the internet, there are more potential possibilities, certainly than when I was young, and perhaps even than there were a few years ago for you. But do you think women's and girls' voices are being heard? I would say, yes, there are more platforms and opportunities for girls where they can raise their voices. The question whether their voices are heard is is challenging and it's a bit difficult to answer because there have been times when we see girls on these global platforms, they're present in the gatherings, uh, and sometimes they're also given the opportunity to give a speech. But when it comes to policy making and then the implementation of those policies, girls' voices are missing. Uh, In the rooms where these decision makers gather, these girls are not just there to tell us their stories and how difficult their life has been, but they also know the solutions to the problems that we confront from poverty to gender discrimination. So we should ensure that their voices are present 
in those rooms and that they are engaged in those conversations. And we have tons of uh, data available and, and, and research available that tells us that when we have diverse rooms and when we have inclusive groups, we end up with better decisions. And one of the aspects that you, you're really focused on is giving girls the tools through education to do that. And I wanted to read out a fantastic quote that you gave in a 2013 interview. You said, if I empower myself with education, if I get knowledge, then it will be much easier for me to get success in my cause. And you've done that. You went to Oxford, graduated from Oxford. Congratulations. Do you feel yourself more empowered by that education? And, and how did a university degree help you? I think whenever I have doubt about education and the work that I'm doing, I think about my own story all the time. I remember the time when I was 11 years old and the Taliban had announced ban on girls' education in the north of Pakistan, in Swat Valley. And I just imagined for a second, what if that ban had lasted forever? What if I was still out of school? I would not have had this life right now. I would never have been able to complete my secondary education, my university education. I would not have been able to start Malala Fund and campaign for the rights of other girls around the world. So I know how crucial education has been in my life. And I know it can be such a big change maker in the lives of so many girls out there. Uh, and not only those girls are missing out, but the world is missing out on those opportunities. The studies and the research that we have done at Malala Fund shows that if we educate all girls and give them complete secondary education, it, it adds up to $30 trillion to the world economy. It helps us reduce poverty, tackle climate change, and reduce the likelihood of war and improve economies. So the advantages are enormous. It's just the will that is lacking right now, the political will from leaders that can actually bring change in the education sector that we need right now. And that's what you're helping to address with the Malala Fund, but you're doing it in a really interesting way. You're not building schools, you're building networks of activists, you're empowering people to do that. Do you want to talk a bit about how, how you do that work in the fund? Yes, so uh, we work with local activists in more than 10 countries. We have 40 girls uh, education activists, both men and women, and they are addressing the local problems that girls are facing in the most marginalized communities. We work in the north of Nigeria with the indigenous communities in Brazil. We work in the most deprived areas in, in Pakistan where you would not see many NGOs working. And our goal is to ensure that, firstly, there is financing for education. Then secondly, that we uh, confront and address the social norms that prevent girls from schooling. And then the third is the quality of education. One thing that I have learned in my work so far is that the issues that girls face in their journey towards education vary from region to region, and there is intersection as well. So you need a locally-led model to help you address those issues. It, it would be very hard for you to come up with a solution in DC or London and figure out how to solve this education crisis. That's really interesting. So different approaches work better in different places. Do you want to highlight just a few of them? What, what have you found has been really effective? I think bringing these activists together is so powerful because some of these activists work individually initially, but when they come together, they realize that there is a platform that can help them to amplify their voices, to be louder than before. And that is something that we heard from our champions in Afghanistan, where we had been working for the past five years. They said that when they approach the political figures and when they arrange those meetings, it's not just one or two of them, but there are many of them who who go there and they talk about this collective message for girls. They talk about 
female teachers training. They talk about gender inclusivity. They want to engage with the religious community leaders as well to uh, ensure that their messages are also focused on women and girls. And these, when they are together, it helps them to have a more impactful advocacy. There are also like external shocks coming in that could abrupt the work that you are doing, that could also push back the work that, that you have done already. And COVID-19 and conflicts, these are big examples of that. We already know that politicians are not prioritizing funding towards education. Sometimes, you know, they support it verbally, but when it comes to actual financial commitment, then they're hesitant and we don't see much from them. So that's why it's important to push for like financing for education in these critical times. And that's the work that these champions are accelerating, they're pushing for. And what have you learned about what makes a successful advocate? Is it being in the media? Is it being, you know, on, on the TV? Is it social media? Is it going in person and lobbying policymakers? What works best, do you think? If I'm honest, uh, this is the question that still puzzles me and that's still on my mind. What is a good activist? And, uh, and that's why I believe in like collaborating with other activists and doing advocacy together with other girls. When I go to meetings with world leaders, I take girls from those communities with me. Like I remember that meeting in Nigeria when Amina, she's a young activist, she was sitting right next to me and uh, I gave her the opportunity to speak. And that was probably the first time for her to speak to her country's vice president. So wow. uh, it's, it's really important to ensure that you understand what your role is and how you can uplift the voices of others and give them presence and room to speak. But again, like I, I think about it every day and every night. And, and how did he react? I assume it was a he. How did he react when he met her? You know, it's, it's always a big surprise for them to hear from activists and young women in their own country to see that the message is not coming from like the so-called liberals or West, that it is coming from their own community. You know, verbally, yes, the support is always positive. Sometimes there are like mere excuses as well. Like, yes, there's, you know, so much burden on us and we are sorting out so many issues. And But you have to constantly remind them that even if you are trying to address poverty and other issues, girls' education play an important role in addressing those issues. If women are not educated, if half of the population is held back, how can we think about the success of a country? How can we think about progress for a country? So in order to ensure progress, we have to educate half of the population, which is women. It's completely essential. But in, in some places, for different reasons, it's really, really difficult. And we'll, we'll turn to Afghanistan in a second. But first, I wanted to talk about places that are at war, where war and conflict is preventing kids' education, girls' education, boys' education. And right now, I'm sure you, along with all of us, are watching with mm -hmm. horror the, the scenes in Ukraine, a country that, you know, only a couple of weeks ago was a peaceful European country. And suddenly there are extraordinary pictures of kids as refugees, kids in bomb shelters. What goes through your mind when you see that? It is heartbreaking to see these images of people collecting their belongings and leaving their homes. And I always tell people that becoming a refugee is no one's first choice. It's always the last and it's always the only option that they have left. That is why people leave their homes, because they're at risk. There is no place for them to be in that country anymore. And we see that in Ukraine right now. And, and we all know that wars cause 
irreversible and, and unimaginable damage. And there is human loss and, and people lose their jobs and there are so many children who lose hope for a better future and their schools are bombed and their, uh, and their homes are bombed. Is there a message that you would have for the young people of Ukraine right now? I want to tell uh, everyone in Ukraine, especially young girls, that you know, we stand with you and none of this is your fault and this should not be happening. And right now, I hope that people from other countries and governments from other countries support the safety and education of these children. Oftentimes in, in these crises, people forget that these children should be in schools and these children miss months and years of education. So their education is important. They should never miss out on this. And, uh, and I hope that this is also a time of awakening for all of us about how these conflicts affect so many countries. What do you think are the most important steps to ensure that the young kids, particularly young girls, get back into education as quickly as possible? I think it's really important for uh, all the host countries to open the schools for children from any conflict-hit country. And we have seen some countries are very welcoming. They open their schools. Some countries do second uh, shifts as well in the afternoon. But some countries close the local schools. They limit refugees to refugee camps. And in the refugee camps, usually there's just, you know, one school for 10,000 and 20,000 children. And not all of those children can be put in that one small building. And oftentimes, they only receive a very basic minimum education, basic literacy. I think it needs to go beyond that. Like wherever a child is, they should not be deprived of this opportunity to learn and to seek knowledge. I think, you know, it's in all of these crises and, and, and bad times, that is the only hope that they can have for their future, that if they learn, if they educate themselves, they can do something for, for themselves and for their country. You know, hopefully once peace is restored, they can go back and build their country back. Is there anything that we've learned from the pandemic and the ability to do remote learning, the improvements in technology that can be helpful for children of conflict in future? I think the pandemic has actually helped us see that digital education can be implemented and this can be part of the future education. I think uh, there are opportunities, but there are challenges as well in digital education. I think we need to take full advantage of it, but also ensure that we are addressing the gender gap in access to digital tools. And we see that, uh, that problem in many communities. Some of the research work that we have done in Nigeria and of, uh, in Pakistan showed us that girls are less likely to have access to digital tools uh, in their homes, especially when there's one digital device, it's more likely that the boy has access to it. Or even if she has access to it, she's more busy in the house chores because that's what the social norms expect her to do. And she does not get enough time to be learning and studying. And also we know that when leaders make policies for digital education, they often uh, do not look at factors like gender. They have to ensure that they make gender inclusive policies for the digital education future that we see. Can we turn now to Afghanistan, which is another, I mean, almost unfathomable humanitarian tragedy. And mm -hmm. at the same time, a government that clearly does not share your views on girls' education. How does the Malala Fund operate there at this point? So Malala Fund uh, was supporting activists in Afghanistan and the top priority was to help them, which we have. Uh, and, you know, it's not just the activists, but their families as well. You know, they have 
a whole family, their husbands, wives, children, their parents who are dependent on them. Uh, and in this critical times, you have to ensure that they are safe. And because of that association with Malala Fund, a lot of them were in a very difficult situation. So most of them are now based in different countries or have found refuge in, in their final destination now. Uh, and all of them are still engaging in advocacy for girls' education, for women's rights and protection right now, and we support them. Regarding Afghanistan, I think a lot needs to happen. This is a time where world leaders can show whether they are truly committed to girls' education or not. Afghanistan right now is the only country where girls are facing difficulties in their secondary education. They are basically facing a de facto ban on their secondary education. Uh, and the Taliban will continue to make excuses from lack of female teachers or safety issues on their way to schools to prevent girls from getting back into schools. Uh, so I think it's really important that, that you know, world leaders step in. And you know, so far, the promises that the Taliban have made to say that on the 21st or 22nd of March, girls will be able to return back to their schools, that they stick to that promise. But we know that that is the first step. You know, there were millions of children and girls who were uh, not in schools before as well. So we need to ensure that those children can enroll back into schools and that the girls who will be returning back to school, that they receive quality education. What is deeply concerning is that the curriculum plans that we see already from the Taliban are not the quality education that children need. How do you think Western policymakers can really influence that? Are there tools that you think are not being used, approaches that are not being used? Because at the moment, everyone seems almost helpless at watching this. I don't think world leaders are helpless. You know, so far in the advocacy engagements that I have had, there seems to be uh, frustration about this lack of vision from the Taliban. And I think there's confusion whether they should trust the Taliban or not. But I think, you know, right now there are just so many things that need to happen because we know that Afghanistan is literally, you know, on the verge of a collapse, an economic collapse right now. Uh, and I hope that, first of all, these international communities, in all of the conversations and dialogues that they're having with the Taliban, that they make no compromise on the protection of women's rights, girls' education, and minorities' rights. That has to be their top priority. And, you know, there are ways in which they can monitor these things. Uh, and I think along with that, there is need for financing. There's need for humanitarian fund. But there's also the issue of this, this traditional definition of humanitarian fund that does not include education and other facilities that people would need. So there's another push to encourage these leaders to help in education as well to ensure that we are actually helping the Afghanistan uh, communities and, and, and people to actually be prepared for their future and to rebuild their economy. So they must ensure that they are paying the teachers' salaries, that they're investing in schools as well, and they're giving specific focus to girls' education as well. But you think those two should be linked, that the humanitarian assistance, the assistance going to Afghanistan should be linked to requirements that more progress is made in girls' education? Yes, I think this is something that, you know, Western countries, Eastern countries, wherever any country is intervening, they must learn that, you know, you cannot fix a country just by humanitarian aid. You need to help build the economy of that country. You need to help that country's people to have quality education, to have strong businesses, to have strong 
communities. I think it's only the local people that can actually strengthen their countries. They are the foundation. You know, I think the aid can only address the immediate and urgent needs, and it has to be provided, you know, uh, and I hope that President Biden and the U.S. courts, they make, they make just decisions for the Afghan reserves. You know, that money belongs to the Afghan people, and it should go back to them. It should be helping them in recovering from this crisis. Like, we know that millions of Afghan people are at risk of starvation. We know that many of them are, you know, are right now selling their daughters to help their families to survive. And this is something that Western countries or other neighboring countries that could prevent. And I would also add that there is a strong role for the Muslim countries to play in this time right now. Their role is critical because the Taliban basically misused the name of Islam. So other Muslim countries need to stand up and say that in their countries, women have access to education, they go to work, they don't need a male companion to go from one city to another. And I think, you know, they need to define what it means in Islam to have equality for women, to have education for, for girls. So they need to challenge the Taliban. Then they also need to provide humanitarian aid and assistance to the Afghan people. That's a really powerful message. One last question for me. What's your next game plan? What happens? <laughs> what's the next chapter of Malala's life in activism going to be? I really love sharing stories. I like bringing in new perspectives and being a Muslim girl, a Pakistani girl, a Pashtun girl, you know, with so many identities myself. I, I love to see myself in rooms where, you know, somebody like me would not have been seen before. Uh, and I always take it as a challenge to bring in more voices. So I have a newsletter, Podium. I also started a productions company. Through all of these initiatives that I have taken right now, I want to bring in the perspectives of young women to share their stories. And I hope I can continue the work for girls' education and see the day when all girls have access to safe and complete education. Thank you so much for Thank joining you. us. I wish you all the very best with the Malala Fund. Thanks Thank so much. Thank you so much. Thank you for the opportunity. Our thanks to Malala Yousafzai and to our editor-in-chief, Sani Minton Bedes. And we'd love to know what you think. At times when there are huge claims on humanitarian aid, should it be linked to progress in girls' education specifically? If you've any personal knowledge of this or of education of refugees in general you think we ought to know about, let us know. Write to us, podcast at economist.com or you can tweet us at Economist Pods. This conversation was part of an event for subscribers to The Economist, one of the many that we put on with global movers and shakers. To find out about more events like this one and get full access to all of our journalism in print and online, including a series of articles on girls' education, guest edited by Malala herself, subscribe at economist.com slash podcast offer. The link is in the notes for this episode. Our producers were Julia Johnson and Alicia Burrell, and the executive producer was Hannah Mourinho. I'm Anne McElvoy, and in London, this is The Economist. Traffic jams, tailgating, pileups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. 
visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute.